Crucial conversations are really important for us to have. Um, sometimes we have hard conversations and they're important, but they're not necessarily crucial. Crucial conversations are the kind of conversations that when you have them, everything changes. Like by the end of the day, you, you don't think the same, you don't feel the same about the things that you had been talking about. Like it changes our hearts, it changes our minds. And we might only have a few of these in our lifetime. We may only have a few of these crucial conversations and you can remember every single one that you've had. I'm just a believer that conversations can solve like 99% of the world's problems. And I know people don't believe that, right? But take a look at your life. And, and when you've had issues with people, by and large, you've let them fester. And those issues have become larger and larger. And oftentimes, we end up having a conversation with that person and be like, yeah, I didn't think that. Well, I thought you thought that. Well, I didn't. Oh, well, and I thought you thought, and we didn't. We didn't. And you both walk away going, oh, we probably should have talked a long time ago. Conversations are really important for us. And I wonder if you can remember what was the most crucial conversation that you ever had, you know? And, and my bet is you can remember it. You can remember where you were. You can remember what you ate if you were at a restaurant. You can remember where you were sitting. Because these conversations have a way of changing us even at a molecular level. I mean, we become different people through these conversations. I remember being 15 years old and having a conversation with my dad. We were watching some sort of sporting event and someone won. And I remember going, oh, I said to my dad, oh, God must have wanted that person to win because the person was like, you know, praise, we prayed about this and praise God, we won. And um, my dad was like, nah, I don't think so. And I was like, what? And he goes, what do you mean? See, I was struggling with some identity issues and I was struggling with some theology about how I could be making really free free, honest to goodness choices. Cause like freedom of choice was a big thing for me. I was 15 and I wanted to do it. Now I, I grew up with a double-edged sword. I had a theologian as a father who wrote many books. So he knew lots of stuff and that's a blessing unless you're 15 <laughs> and you don't want to hear from your dad who's written a book about what you're talking about. Like it's super annoying. Um, and so I remember I was like, no, no, I mean, that's must have, God must have ordained that person to, to win. And my dad was like, I don't think God works that way. And I was like, what? What do you mean? This person's thanking God. And my dad's like, well, what if the other guy prayed too? And I was like, what? I don't know. And so we had this conversation and it, it culminated in, which I often did, just so you know, it culminated in my dad going, well, listen, there's a book you should read about this. And that's super annoying to a 15 year old. Like, I don't wanna read a book on this. And so my dad's like, hey, there's a book you should read on this. The most annoying part of that was when my dad had written the book. <laughs> and even more annoying is when the, my dad had dedicated the book to me hated that because he'd be like, you should read this book. You know, I dedicated it to you. I'd be like, I don't read your stupid book, dad. Um, but he goes, I didn't write the book. And I was like, oh, auspicious beginning. Um, and he goes, no, I didn't write the book. Uh, Rick Rice wrote the book. Who's my dad's best friend, Dr. Richard Rice. And he's like, you should read this book. And that conversation led to me reading the book, led to me really believing differently than I think I had before, led to me now teaching that. And, and it helped me become not just a minister, but become and stay perhaps a Christian because I know that God does not coerce us, that God gives us incredible free will to, to love him and incredibly free will to walk away if that's what we choose as well. 
And so it was really, it was a crucial conversation for me. And, I, and we don't get a lot of those in our life, but, but the ones that we get are important. So we're going to talk about a crucial conversation today. Um, and you know the story. It starts like this. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. Now, Jericho is always an important town. He made his way through Jericho, probably going to Jerusalem. Jericho was kind of a hub of commerce. There was a lot of things happening. It was on the edge of their area there. And um, so they would have like had a customs department. Right, you know how you you land at LAX and you have to go through customs and it's um, horrible. Well, you kind of had to do the same thing, and you'd have to pay taxes on the goods that you were bringing in to town. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, you had to pay taxes on the goods that you were bringing into the area, and so um, specifically, like like some of you may remember this. Do you remember that hymn? There is a balm in Gilead, right? Some of you are like, yeah. Other of you are like, no. Well. Um, Gilead was this region where it did make balms. They made like um, rubs and ointments and they would bring that through Jericho and people would pay a lot. And um, so in that, there's a lot of opportunity for graft, if you will. There's a lot of opportunity to cheat people if you've got the right system. Now, you're going to know, I'm going to give away the story here in the next part. It says, there was a man named Zacchaeus. And I know what's going on in your head right now. He was a wee little man, because that's what you're thinking, right? You're thinking Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Uh, the word we is not in scripture, just so you know. Like there's no Hebrew equivalent of we. There's no, there's no word there. He was a chief tax collector in the region and he became very rich. Now this is interesting, right? Because um, first of all, there's a weird play on words going on here because the word Zacchaeus, the name Zacchaeus actually means righteous one, right? Which we know like he was a wee little man a wee little man was he um but he was essentially running a ponzi scheme because he was not just the tax collector he was the chief tax collector so all the other tax collectors who would have been involved in grafting as well taking money off the top they're taking a little money off the top kicking it up kicking it up gets to him right then what he does is he pays the romans because that's important to do they're the ones who pay the taxes and they don't need anything else they don't care what they're getting they're just getting what they're getting and so he's embezzling a bunch of money right so he's running a ponzi scheme by the way ponzi was a guy in 1931 who got people to invest in something um and then the way he paid them back was to get people below them to invest and people below them to invest and he kind of kept that cycle going it looks a little bit like a pyramid and that's what we call a pyramid scheme right started in 1931 they named it ponzi after this guy the biggest ponzi scheme probably that we can that we think about in um in the last 20 years or so even though it was going on much longer than that was bernie madoff if you guys remember Bernie Madoff, he um, made off with $65 billion. Billion, how do you, how does one embezzle a great deal of money? Like how, I wouldn't, I couldn't embezzle $65 billion because no one will ever give me access to that kind of money. Like I'll never be in proximity to $65 billion. But let me tell you, let me tell you how people uh, embezzle that much or a great sum of money. It starts by embezzling a little bit. It doesn't start by, nobody walks in and embezzles $65 billion, they would notice, right? It starts with 25 cents here. It starts with a buck 50 here, 50 bucks here, 
right? And, and the truth is, that is the process in which any of us that have found ourselves in great sin have found ourselves in great sin. None of us started off going, you know what I'd like to be? A great sinner, not just a little sin. Like, I want to get to the original. I want to get my sin so big, it's seen as original, right? Nobody does that. What people do is make a little compromise here and a little compromise there. And the accretion of those little compromises get to the point where you have embezzled $65 billion or whatever it is in your life. No one starts out to be a great sinner. It's practice that makes us into great sinners, right? That's what happens. So going back to the story, he tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. We little man. In other words, um, some, some translations say he was of small stature, which is kind of another play on words, right? Because character-wise, he was of small stature as well. But then he does something. The next verse in verse 4, it says, So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road. For Jesus was going to pass that way. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord. He's trying to see. You didn't know it was actually very biblical, that song. But we need to take a moment here and think about the context, right? This is the chief tax collector. So he's got status, right? He's got money. You know, he drives the donkey equivalent of a Tesla, whatever that is. Um, he is... <laughs> that just made me laugh. Um, so, so, so this guy, like he's dressed in fine robes. He's wearing what he's supposed to wear. He's probably got jewelry and he's running. And again, and I've said this before, anytime you see a man in a suit running, you should probably start running too. There's something wrong, right? Cause we don't see men in suits running ever. This man in a suit did not just run. He climbed a tree. Now let's just picture that for a moment. Think of your boss but not like your supervisor. Think of your boss, the one when they walk in the building, you go, oh, we gotta make sure we're working, right? The guy who doesn't, or the woman who doesn't know your name. If you saw them running in the parking lot of your business, you'd be like, something's wrong. And then they stop and go, huh, and climb up a tree. <laughs> You're like, I'm not working for this company anymore. It's run by crazy people. Well, this is what's going on, right? The chief tax collector of the town is doing something that people would not think that he was normally going to do. So he jumps and he climbs up in a tree because Jesus was gonna pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name, important, right? He stops and he looks up and he goes, hey man, Zacchaeus, I need you to come down. Now, the reason why this is important is because we don't know why he knew the name or how he knew the name. It could have been the Holy Spirit certainly. As well, it could have been that people of great wealth have a tendency to be well-known, right? A lot of us spend a lot of our time looking at Instagram accounts and Facebook postings and BuzzFeed articles of people who are famous that you will never know and honestly don't really mean anything to you. But they somehow have become part of our lives, am I right? Like somebody here knows exactly what Kim Kardashian is doing today. Don't raise your hand, I mean, it might be good knowledge, I don't know. Um, but, but we have a tendency to look up to those people to kind of want to know what's going on. Probably the same thing in the ancient world as well. But what's interesting is that, is that Jesus was willing to call Zacchaeus by name because this is what God does. When God wants to talk to you, he's gonna call you by name. Out of the billions of people on this planet, when you were called, you were asked for by name. This is the, the paradox of the transcendent creator God and the intimate 
personal God that we have, right? This is why we need the concept of the Trinity. This is why we need that understanding because God is both the one who created all and the one who knows your name as well. And so he looks up and he goes, Zacchaeus, quick, come down. I'm going to be a guest at your house today. And I love the way the New Living Translation translates it. It says, I must come to your house today. Now, this would create a lot of anxiety in us. Like if, even if it was just me and I'm by no means God or Jesus in any way, if we met out there and I was like, hey, I'm going to come over to your house for lunch today, there would be like the pastor's coming over, which it doesn't mean anything, but, but there would be this anxiety that some of us would have. Now, some of you are prepared, like your house is ready, but that's like four of you right? The rest of you are like, no. And they're looking at, you know, the wife's going to look at their husband like, you better go home now. Like, you better start cleaning right now because I told you to clean that. You did not clean that out. It's time for you to go. And the guy's like, I don't even have time to mow the lawn. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, it's going to be a mess. That would happen at my house. I look at my wife and be like, okay, they're coming. And my wife would be like, no, we're going out to eat. Because, you know, we're not prepared. We're often not ready. Right? Well, this is what happens. Zacchaeus quickly climbs down and takes Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people, they were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they say. Oh, they didn't just say, they grumbled. That's two very interesting responses. Why don't we take a moment and look at these two responses, right? You've got Zacchaeus and you've got the crowd's response. What was Zacchaeus' response? Excitement and joy. Now, we should probably ask why. I mean, you need to think about it for a moment. Um, This is a notorious sinner meeting God. And God, oftentimes, we have a tendency to think God's going to judge, and that's pretty disconcerting, right? But Zacchaeus didn't seem to have any concern about the judgment that might be forthcoming from Jesus. Why is that? Well, I think it's because Jesus doesn't judge, Jesus redeems, right? And there's a difference. Christians oftentimes have a bad reputation because we are really good at judging and not so good at redeeming. Even though we believe in a God that redeems, we have a tendency to look down our noses at people. We have a tendency to look down our noses at each other, right? What is that? And this kind of speaks into the crowd's response, right? Gossiping and grumbling. He's going to the place of a notorious sinner. He said they were not so happy. But you know, when we gossip and we grumble, we don't go to the source and, and have that crucial conversation, do we? Right? Nobody went to Jesus and we're like, hey, man, I don't, I don't know if you know this. I mean, I know you know his name, but he's a chief tax collector. We don't really like him. He's not really a good dude. Maybe, maybe not him. What kind of message are you giving to people? That you can just do that and be saved? Nah, is that really what you want to message? The optics on that aren't great right? They don't do that. They didn't even go to Zacchaeus and go, hey, Zacchaeus, come on. We know, like, we know. We don't have to say it, but we know. You don't really, like, you sure you want Jesus to come over to your house? We know, we know about what goes on over there. Probably not a good idea. No, that's not how it works. When you gossip and you grumble, you just get, you get this really, like, ugly undermining that happens, right? That happens all the time in church, by the way. Um, It happens, I mean, it happens with any group of people, but unfortunately, we as Christians should live above that a little bit, but we don't, right? We're not willing to have those conversations. We're willing to like lean into the gossip because that's what we do when somebody says, hey, did you hear you go? Right? We want to, we kind of want to know. 
And specifically, this happens anytime God's grace is poured out. Anytime God's grace is poured out on people, especially people that others would seem don't deserve it, people grumble. They question leadership, right? Should we really love those people? I mean, we just baptized 10 people and probably there's somebody grumbling, like, mm, should we do that? Should we take them through the 27, 28 fundamental beliefs? Like, is it really okay to just put them in the water right now? Is that all right? I mean, because he was, he was a notorious sinner, right? And I bet they were thinking, well, he's a notorious sinner. Why didn't Jesus pick us? We're better. But let me say it this way, and maybe this will hit home a little bit. Who, if saved and forgiven, would cause you to grumble? Who, if saved and forgiven, would cause you to grumble? Who? Someone who abused you? Somebody who ripped you off? Somebody that you felt harmed you or betrayed you? Cheated on you? Divorced you? Lied about you? Somebody who fired you? Would you grumble if they were saved? But the thing is, you know, in God's sight, we're all the same. We're all sinners desperately in need of a Savior. In the sight of God, we are all like that. We grumble when they are saved. But maybe a better question to ask is this, who grumbled when you were saved? Because somebody did, right? Somebody who thought you had done them wrong, that you abused them, you lied to them, you cheated them, you divorced them, you fired them. Man, couldn't we cheer rather than grumble? Last week, 10 baptisms, we cheered, but there might have been somebody there who was grumbling. Oh, so that we can always be the ones who cheer when someone is saved, when someone is redeemed, because that's what was going on there. Zacchaeus was being redeemed, and you know what happened? This is what happened. It says this in verse 8. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and he said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor. Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Do you notice? Jesus didn't go, hey, we need to talk about your sin. Can you come down? Because I guarantee you wouldn't have come down with joy and excitement. Right? He would have been like, uh, you know what it is. You know what it is when you're getting your kid in trouble and they know that they're in trouble. That's the longest walk back to their room. You're like, hey man, I need you to go to your room. We need to have a talk. My kids will like, they'll, they'll take out the trash so they don't have to go back to their room. They'll not, dad, I'm doing the dishes. Dad, all of a sudden I'm doing homework that 15 minutes ago you said you didn't have. Right? That's not what happened because he knew he was going to be redeemed. And here's what's interesting. When there's restitution and repentance, there equals rejoicing. You see, this guy goes, hey, you know what? I've been redeemed. I got to do something now. I got to live a different way. Jesus forgives him and changes him. You see, God never leaves us in sin. He's not interested in that. We go back to it. We go back like a dog to its vomit, says Proverbs. But he won't, he doesn't, he changes us because Jesus is the life changer. 
right? We want that change. But you got to understand, we, we want that change not to get him to love us, but because he has already loved us. Not to get him to forgive us, but he's already forgiven us. Not to get it so he will like us. He has already said that he is a friend of ours. And by the way, the result of being redeemed, it's not religion. It's rejoicing. We have a tendency to think that if, if, if somebody gets redeemed, they'll become a really good religious person. What is a really good religious person? I don't even know if I can explain that. I don't want to be a really good religious Christian. I want to be a rejoicing Christian. I don't want to be somebody who gets really good at the rules and the regulations. I want to, get, I want to become somebody who lives so far past those, they forget that there are rules and regulations. I'm not so interested in the boundaries that have been set by this institution. I'm really interested in the abundant life that God has promised to give people, right? Absolutely. And by the way, Zacchaeus was a sinner. He had committed sins of omission. And what I mean by that is that he had omitted to take care of the poor. He had left out the poor completely. Some of us come to church every week, sing songs really loudly, read our Bible a lot, and have not taken care of our fellow man. You are committing the sin of omission. We have to take care of each other better. And he didn't only do that, he also committed sins of commission, which is where he defrauded people knowingly. So what did he do? He made restitution. By the way, restitution is not penance, right? Some of you are familiar with the idea of penance. Penance is done so God can forgive you. Restitution is done because you have been forgiven. So don't ever think you have to pay penance. That's not how that works. And by the way, he made what I like to call ridiculous restitution. Let me tell you why it's ridiculous. Levitical law from the book of Leviticus, you know that book that bogs you down when you're trying to read the Bible through in a year? That book you're like, I don't know if I want to do this. That's what happens. In Leviticus, there is a rule that says when you defraud somebody, you're supposed to pay them back and then pay them plus 20%. Pretty good return on investment, right? 20%. That's not what he did. Do you remember what he did? He paid them back four times over, 400 times how much he defrauded them. Ridiculous restitution. You see, what we do for the love of God is always above and beyond any law people set up. It always goes further because love compels us to do that. And Jesus' response, like, this is real. Jesus goes, listen, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham, not by birth, but by obedience. But here, did it stick? Because like, we love it when there's a conversion story, right? We just never follow up on them. And here's what's fascinating. It, the statistics on people coming to church and being converted and then leaving are overwhelming. Lots of people come to church. Almost as many people leave, right? So did this stick? Did Zacchaeus' experience, did, he, did Zacchaeus experience serious and stick change? Well, I did a little research. And it's, uh, it's not in the Bible, but in the history of the church, Clement was the Bishop of Alexandria. And in a sermon, a sermon, a homily of his, he says that this man, Zacchaeus, 
actually went on to become the bishop of Caesarea, possibly appointed by Peter himself. Did it stick? Yes. And then Jesus finishes this crucial conversation by saying, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. If that's why Jesus was there that day, he hit the target. Because that man, Zacchaeus, was a mess. But yet he's the one who got saved and forgiven that day. You see, he's the one who needed the kind of salvation that Jesus had to offer. The rest of them weren't asking for that. But Zacchaeus was. And that, that restitution that he made, that ridiculous restitution that he made, come not from being judged and called wrong, but from being redeemed and called friend. So why do we as Christians get real serious sometimes about making sure we're judging the right people? We know who should not come. We know who should not be here. We know who we can build fences around and keep out. Where in Scripture did you see Jesus do that? Just tell me. Tell me where it was. Tell me where it was where Jesus didn't look upon a notorious sinner and go, you know, you're mine. I love you. And I know these religious people are having a hard time with you, but I, I love you. Man, those people, their lives changed so overwhelmingly, so completely, so phenomenally that they didn't give back 20%, they gave back 400%. And probably would have done more if they had more. So what do we learn from this particular crucial conversation? So much, but three things that are important. I mean, at least three things. Number one, crucial conversations might not just be crucial for the two people involved. There are people listening to this conversation that Jesus was having. I mean, we know that because it's in Scripture. Somebody else heard this conversation. You never know who is listening to the conversation of meaning that you are having with someone especially when it exemplifies the grace and love of Jesus Christ. The people got a lesson. The conversation was bigger than just Jesus and Zacchaeus. It was for the whole community to see why Jesus came. Number two, crucial conversations can change a person completely. You can be a different person by the end of a conversation when you understand the love, grace, mercy, and compassion of God differently than when you started that conversation. And so can the person that you're speaking to. If you're willing to leave your baggage alone and give them the unfettered gospel, the idea that God loves them so much there's nothing they can do that is gonna surprise God, it's gonna scare God away, or that's gonna stop God from loving them and offering them His grace. If you can do that, you will see people's lives change. And if you pray through this series for a crucial conversation where you can show someone the overwhelming love of God, you better be prepared to do it because it will come and it will change their lives and it will change yours. And I think the last thing is this, crucial conversations can happen anywhere. In fact, they probably won't happen in church. This one started in a tree and by the side of the road. It could happen in a bar. It could happen on the beach. It could happen on your phone when you're stuck on the 91 freeway. Lots of time to talk there. (laughs) But you need to be ready, as ready as Jesus was to have a crucial conversation. You need to be looking around and looking up in trees to see those who are looking in. Because there are people in your lives who right now are waiting to have a crucial conversation. They don't know how to get it started. So you better call them by name. 
right? And you may be somebody who is waiting to have a crucial conversation, who's waiting for somebody to tell you how much God really does love you, how overwhelming His grace is for you. You may have, even though you're a churchgoer, you may be stuck like those religious people wondering why God won't love you, not accepting the fact that He does. So it's my hope and prayer today that you're, that you're open your eyes are open and that you're ready to have a conversation and that you will with courage move into those conversations, not as a corrective on someone's life because you telling them they're doing something wrong will not correct their behavior. The only thing that will is the overwhelming grace of Jesus. So give them that. That's all you're responsible for. Let God do the rest. He's really, really good at this. Let's bow our heads today. Heavenly Father, Jesus, thank you for your, um, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your willingness to have courage and step into a conversation with us. I'm so thankful. Lord, thank you for phenomenal Easter. Uh, what a blessing. And thank you for the continued ripples and the everglow that we have from that. Lord, thanks for being here today. And thanks for continuing with us as we leave. Accept our worship today, Lord and all our brokenness and all our pieces, accept it all and put it back together. In your name I pray, amen.